This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, This Week in Blackness Radio, The Media Matters Minute, The Progressive, and Comedian Lee Camp. And a note for those who are curious, this podcast does not support the establishment of White History Month. I got an email from Timothy. This should be an interesting discussion. He said, I was watching a video discussing the inclusion of a white student organization at a particular college campus and wondered if you guys might be interested in discussing a particular topic on your show. Do white groups have any need to organize on group, into groups on campus? If so, would it be an inherently racist group? And finally, do these groups inherently draw lines between ethnic groups that actually perpetuate race and ethnic issues? This is interesting. So this was, it made kind of minor news. Um, at Towson University, there were two out of three students are white, I'll mention. Uh, this is just outside uh, uh, the East Coast city of Baltimore, where most of the population is actually black. A student, 21-year-old student named Ma uh, Matthew Heimbach says, white culture is dying. Every other single group has a union, Jewish, black. Why don't white students get equal treatment? He uh, uh, also was uh, uh, involved in another group a while back, um, which was a which the Youth for Western Civilization, which was not able to continue because it had a bit of a supremacist agenda, according to the university's assistant vice president for student affairs. So he says, we live on a campus where there is discrimination against whites. He's referring to affirmative action. And he says that uh, the white student union, which isn't officially recognized by the university, has around 30 members. To be officially recognized, you need an advisor, and it's been tough to get an advisor for the white student union. Let's talk about this. Um, I don't know where to start. I mean, specifically with this individual, um, I believe that he does have a history that indicates that what's at the core here is an element of white supremacy, not just a group that is getting together for the same reasons that we would have any number of other ethnic or racial groups. So specifically with this group, I'm tended to think his motives are a little bit uh, uh, supremacist. Okay, uh, let's say this pops up on another college and you know nothing about the individual or the members, um, the individual starting it or the members. Still, wouldn't the first thing that comes to mind be, okay, these people are prob probably have a, a white supremacist agenda? We may have that tendency, but that tendency may not be unwarranted. Uh, just to add another note, Heimbach denies being racist, but he says that there are dangers of Marxism and a multicultural society, and he talks about a genocide where minority groups will overtake whites in the U.S. population. Sounds perfectly... Uh, like what David Duke or Pat Buchanan say, we're going to be overrun by Hispanics and other groups. Okay, right. so this guy specifically, I think he probably is uh, racist here. However, let's go to Natan first. Is a white group like this, if they want to have a white student union, is it inherently racist? Well, it's t difficult to answer. So, for example, a lot of the black groups that would appear on a campus or a Jewish group or even a Latino group, which in itself may be too broad, sometimes there's an El Salvadorian group, a Uruguayan group, etc., these things are meant to unite people with common cultural uh, threads or language or history. And all of these groups have been oppressed in American history, and some of them continue to be. In fact, all of the ones that I mentioned in some ways. Whereas white people have never been oppressed in this country. White people have always been the majority, and they still are the majority, and they have had a certain amount of privilege. And I would add 
that white people do not share a common ethnicity. There are Irish people, there are Jewish white people, there are, hello, Argentinian white people, like on this show. There are all kinds of white people who don't have exactly a shared identity. And the only real reason that I can think of that someone would want to unite people only along the lines of their skin and not along the lines of ethnicity is because they have some idea that they deserve to be together in the same way that the other groups are. And I can't think of that happening without supremacism being a part of it. That's not to say that it's impossible, but it's very hard for me to believe it. I would say, is it inherently racist? No, not necessarily. But I'd really be curious to hear what they're talking about uh, the when they're talking about white culture, uh, yeah, what they're talking about those meetings. Right. Which white does white culture even exist? Is there such a thing? I mean, there's certainly the idea. It's it's a good point, which is the idea that white culture, in the sense that it includes uh, Irish people in Boston, it's a euphemism, and and people of German origin in Georgia, and that there would be some kind of shared culture there, specifically because of the white skin color. It, it seems non-existent. Right. It's right. not only non-existent, it's a, for the most part, it's a euphemism. It, it's a reference to a period of American history where they were oppressing people of color. I mean, that is the term that ha is often used by KKK members, by white supremacists, white culture, white people, a white country, the country being taken away from us. This is all very old language. I think with regard to these groups, we need to say there are no blanket statements in this particular case the kid's got a supremacist background he tried to do something similar he says things that are pretty pretty uh, xenophobic in this particular case i would say this was going to be a racist group Okay, bottom line, I knew that there was more to Django being just a movie because for several days between Christmas and New Year's on Drudge's website every day, they were trashing Django Unchained, this, move, this movie. And Drudge is, like, you know, famous for portraying black politicians, particularly President Obama, in ways that emphasize their race in a negative context. But this was something else. He wasn't going after actor Jamie Foxx, who's African-American, or filmmaker Tarantino, who's white, but who made the movie. This was more subtle. What Drudge was doing on, on the Drudge Report, on his right-wing so-called news website, was he was suggesting that Django was a failure as a movie. In other words, a financial failure, that people weren't showing up to see it. And obviously, the reason he's doing that, he's trying to discourage people from seeing the movie. So I'm sitting here looking at this going, Why? Why is Drudge trying to discourage people from being a movie? I mean, you know, what could it be? I mean, is, here's a movie about a black hero. Is that what's causing the hard right to, to go nuts? I mean, I, I saw the movie on Christmas Day with, with my wife Louise and our, our, our kids, our, uh, I think two of our three kids in Portland, Oregon. The audience was all white. They cheered the black guy and his wife. But is that enough to draw the hatred of the hard right in America to get you on Drudge Report? trashed
I mean, plenty of movies have African-American heroes do really well with white audiences, and they don't get trashed by hard-right so-called news websites. And so for like, you know, three days, I'm walking around going, there's got to be something I'm missing. You know, why, what's Drudge so upset about here? And then it hit me. The importance of that movie, Django Unchained, the, the importance of that movie is not just the horrors of slavery, although that's really important about it, and it's not that it's a really great story of a knight off to rescue his damsel in distress, which it is, or, and it's not about brilliant acting on the part of Jamie Foxx and Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's not about brilliant filmmaking. Instead, it was a giant middle finger to the South. And not just to the South of 1858, which is when the movie is set. It was a screw you to the South of today. And all the Republican politicians from other parts of the nation, in increasingly, including the Midwestern states, where the KKK is on the rise since the Obama election four years ago, who have adopted the divisive, or is that divisive, however you say it, and race-baiting politics of the South. From Michigan Governor Rick Snyder handing over entire, entire largely African-American communities and schools, school districts, to crony emergency managers to loot on behalf of their rich buddies, to the Republican governors pushing voter suppression ID laws, to the raw racist rhetoric by national Republican legislators that they're going to break President Obama, to the white politician who shouted, you lie during a State of the Nation speech, to these Republicans who proudly brag and repeat that their first and most important job was to make sure our first African-American president is a one-term president. You know, these guys, they don't use the N-word as publicly or as frequently as their political ancestors did back in 1858 or as is used in the movie. Instead, they use phrases like states' rights. You know, where Ronald Reagan gave his first speech in 1980 after he was nominated for president of the United States? He went to a little town of fewer than 10,000 people down, down in Mississippi, Philadelphia, Mississippi. And he gave a speech on states' rights. And there were all these white folks around America who just kind of didn't notice that because they didn't know what was going on. And what, Philadelphia, Mississippi? Did he, did he get the state wrong? Did he mean to go to Pennsylvania? Oh, no. This was Reagan's first speech as a Republican running for president of the United States in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where, where three civil rights workers were murdered. Or Republicans talking among themselves privately, where they say things like, eh, there are people who will vote for the president no matter what, who are dependent upon government, who believe that they're victims, there are people who pay no income tax, and so my job is not to worry about those people. Remember when Mitt Romney said that? They're following the strategy that Richard Nixon pioneered for the Republican Party. He called it, proudly, his Southern strategy. So here, now just consider this. In this movie, there are two primary white characters. One is played brilliantly and brutally by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's got a thick southern drawl and the worldview of those people who are today working to suppress the black vote. The other white character in the movie speaks with an accent that's somewhere between John Kerry and Martin Bashir, and he's horribly offended by that southern ethos. Guess which one of those two, guys, those two white guys is the center of evil for the movie? Now, you know, again, there's a lot of black primary characters in mainstream movies that draw large white audiences. And Jamie Foxx is as brilliant an actor and as strong a character as you'll ever see in any movie, regardless of race or genre. But when you see Django Unchained, you'll understand why Foxx is not just playing another black action hero or action hero, 
generically. This movie is about something altogether different. It's about a culture in the South that existed for hundreds of years before 1858 and is still alive today. Quentin Tarantino and Jamie Foxx have delivered a clear message to the tenthers, the birthers, the secessionists, and the voting ID suppressionists of today's Republican Party. And there are very few high-profile African-American enablers. Now, I don't know if that was Tarantino's goal. I mean, you'd have to ask him, and I don't know him. I haven't asked him. But speaking for myself, to this white movie viewer, that subtext to the movie was un unes inescapable. And what caused me to suddenly realize it, i got to say, apparently, it was also inescapable to Matt Drudge. Because, like I said, you don't see right-wing news sites going after movies. From the bright, sunny south to the war I was sent. Ere the days of my boyhood I scarcely had spent. From its cool, shady forests and deep-flowing streams. Ever fond in my memory and sweet in my dreams. So Israel has a twofold immigration problem these days. First of all, there's refugees uh, from Sudan uh, that are in the country, and there's been a lot of uh, agitation over that. Uh, you know, Israelis uh, protesting, marching, sometimes yelling at Sudanese women um, and men, and, and calling them a lot of bad words. Uh, basically, say Sudanese, go home. You're not welcome here. You're criminals. In one instance, shouting at them, "You're whores," etc. Now, of course, is there an irony there? Israel was created because nobody would take in the Jews during the Holocaust. So that seems like an excellent justification, and the one that is used most often, understandably so, right? Now, the Sudanese have not been treated well, not just in Sudan, the ones that are fleeing, but also in Egypt and other Muslim countries as well. And a lot of them are Christian, and they're fleeing because they're being persecuted because of religious reasons. Now, you would hope that of all the countries in the world, Israel would understand that best. But that's actually the least of their immigration problems. They also have 130,000 Ethiopians. Now, in this case, the Ethiopians are Jewish, so it doesn't really matter. It's a Jewish state, so uh, they should be welcome, right? Well, not exactly. The health ministry has just admitted that they were doing forced sterilization of Ethiopian women, even though they're Jewish, as they were coming into the country. Now, thank God the sterilization is not permanent, but it did last for a long time. In fact, over the last 10 years, the birth rate among Ethiopians in Israel has dropped by 50%. Now, you don't have to speculate as to why. As I just told you, Israel's health minister has admitted they did the program. And in fact, he sent out a note saying not to renew prescriptions for Depo-Provera for women of Ethiopian origin if for any reason there is concern that they might not understand the ramifications of the treatment. I don't think the issue was that they didn't understand the ramifications of the treatment. The issue was as they were coming in, they were told they had to get that shot. Sometimes they were lied to and said, oh yeah, it's a vaccination and it's uh, going to help you with your health. One of the women that were interviewed, the 30 different ones saying the same thing, uh, was uh, 
saying, quoted as saying, quote, they told us they are inoculations. They told us people who frequently give birth suffer. We took it every three months. We said we didn't want to. Look, Israel is not the only country with racism. I mean, look at the United States of America. We had slavery here, and uh, problems of racism still exist in this country, as well as many other countries. But that is un really embarrassing. I mean, if you're going to be a Jewish state, and then you do this to fellow Jews, what, just because they're African? Because they're black? Oof. The people of Israel should be livid over that. And I wish they were also livid over the Sudan situation. Unfortunately, a poll out is really frightening. 52% uh, of Israelis say that uh, African asylum seekers are, quote, a cancer. That's 52%. That's the majority. And one-third of Israelis said that they support violent attacks on Africans seeking asylum. That is a terrible number. Terrible. There's a lot that could be improved upon in all the different countries in the world, including the U.S. But that's something that Israel definitely needs to work on. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. So Colin Powell is becoming my favorite old black man. Why? Favorite. So he he actually he you know how he got into he got into it about the Republicans not too long ago yes. and how the Republican Party has a is it a dark vein of intolerance? Yes. Yes. So Bill O'Reilly had Colin Powell on a show the other day. Bill O'Reilly got on basically questioned why Powell, a Republican, had supported Obama twice. Which I mean, which I gotta like it's 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 really telling about um damn it of Mr. Mr. Riley there. Why? He's like, why? You're a Republican. How could you support him twice? Cause what, it, what he's saying is that you know, it doesn't matter what your beliefs are in general. It's more about you, you, it's about party unity. Like you, I need you to make sure that you will co-sign the party as opposed to ever, ever doing what you think is right. The party is first. And I think that's problem, problematic across the board. Like, I don't, like, I don't think that should, it should work like that with Democrats. And it definitely shouldn't work like that with Republicans. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It was, it was a pretty long interview, but Colin Powell wasn't about to take any mess from Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Good. 
The fact is, he he shouldn't have to take any, uh, anything from him because, like, at this point, he's he's too old for this nonsense. What, uh, uh, <laughs> that I I believe he should call out his Danny Glover, they call out his inner Danny Glover. Just say, "I'm too old for this shit. I'm not doing it." And if someone questions him, like, "Go, I'm sorry. Did you not hear what I just said? I'm too old for this shit." <laughs> Period. Period. End of end of story. Hold on, I think Drops I, the mic. I have some uh, I have some of the uh, audio here. Let's see what's happening with this. Awesome. Immiserated. So, General, I'd like you to be very specific, and I'd like to be very brutal tonight about the Republican Party. What is it that you object to mostly that caused you to vote for President Obama twice? I voted for the president twice because, first and foremost, I didn't think that the economic plans put forward by the campaign in 2008 or 2012 really were suited for the times we were in. So I had an economic reason to do that. Secondly, uh, I became a Republican officially in 1995 after I decided not to run. And I have voted previously seven straight times for Republican candidates. I've spoken at the 1996 convention, the 2000 convention. I worked for Reagan. I worked for Weinberger. I worked for Nixon as a White House fellow. So I think my credentials are fine. But in the last several years, I have been troubled by the right shift of the Republican Party too far to the right. And I've said this on a number of occasions. And so in 2008, I found that as an American, uh, the best choice for America at that time and continuing in 2012 was Senator Obama and then uh, now President Obama okay. reelected. Man, that was reasonable. Wow. That was, that was a, that was a overload of reason. <laughs> he, right? That, there, was, there was there was nothing emotional or anything like, like he he wasn't trying to be like cute like I mean, like listen I thought I thought the economic factors were wrong and then I have an issue with the way the party is right now. <laughs> what about that? Oh, and I have Republican cred. <laughs> and what? So Bill O'Reilly then stood down because Bill O'Reilly can see reason and react properly to it. I mean, obviously that's what that was the next thing so that happened, sir. I, I mean, there's not even re really a, the rest of the interview anymore because after he said that, Bill O'Reilly obviously said, "I'm sorry, we shouldn't." That's a dumb <laughs> question to even ask you. That's obviously that's what that's what Bill O'Reilly is about to say. Now, here's what perplexes me. Oh, never mind. You're an analytical man. <laughs> Would you say that's correct? Yeah. Well, I'll try uh, to be. All right. President Obama's economic plan hasn't worked. Among African Americans, when you voted for whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 wait, whoa, wait, whoa, don't you love it when they the first thing they do is throw, uh, throw out among African Americans when you mother you guys never care about that when we start when we start pointing out specifically things that are happening within the black community you guys don't care <laughs> we, it's like oh we need this, we need help with this this is a, this is a problem no one cares but all of a sudden now you're talking to Colin Powell and well, well, mm. they're, they're listening to keep it on file just in case they need to discuss things with Colin Powell by any stretch for him twelve point seven unemployment December two thousand twelve a month after you voted for him again fourteen percent unemployment up okay hadn't worked income. Black income thirty-two thousand dollars compared to white fifty-five thousand. And I want to. 
are you are you pretending that first of all that, that actually he's not pretending he doesn't he probably has no clue that if there is ever an economic issue in America that it hits people of color first of all a little bit later and a little bit longer this is what mm-hmm. it, it this is just how it works in society when it, the collapse first happened we didn't, we didn't feel it that much it's it's later on it's as all as it, everything's well, has the ripple effect that we end up feeling it and we all we've always had a higher percentage of the unemployment rate than the rest of the country and that was happening the entire time George Bush was running so what is it on down under President Obama hasn't worked so you basically said to yourself I'm still going to support the guy even though his economic policies haven't worked for African Americans and pretty much anyone else why are you only seeing me as an African-American, Bill? That because you didn't cite it. You didn't cite it. No, I know that. But I'm, you cited no. it in some of your criticisms. You said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the disengagement of the Republican Party from the minority community, blacks and Hispanics, troubled you. So because he thinks that you guys won't talk to people like they're also Americans, now you can only quote black statistics but when you ever discuss anything else ever you can't discuss black statistics because then we're being diversive i mean divisive i just i i often uh, bill o'reilly makes makes me just uh, because he he's not a stupid guy but he's a definitely stubborn guy he knows what his what his audience wants to hear but just i mean you're talking, you're talking to Colin Powell and you're framing everything as about, uh, African Americans in order to try and catch him in his, you know, but I'm not, I'm just an American and I'm not only interested in African American economics, but I'm interested in all economics. He's trying to just like, like pin him down almost like it almost feels like he's trying to pin him down as like almost racist in a way or prejudiced, you know, against everybody else. Like I, like you only see yourself amongst and in the context of black America. And that is a problem. Actually, what, what I, what I've noticed is that every time this type of conversation happens, every time this type of thing goes down and you ever mention an issue amongst uh, uh, black folks or whatever, at that point, at that point, you, 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 you're a problem. And it, like you, you can say, hey, actually, you guys aren't reaching out to black people. Oh, well then let's look at someone. Like, so it becomes this weird, how do I say, like, it's it's almost as if that and by the way this is why some people refuse don't bring up race and especially when you, within the Republican Party and it's because when you do even if it's you're absolutely correct at that point you're looked at as divisive and now the conversation is completely derailed whether or not the Republican Party is in fact completely a problem completely and totally problematic no longer matters because you mentioned black people so now we're gonna we're gonna point we're gonna poke with, at you about black people what about that I know that you are uh, a, 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 a an American with a with a a record that I mean lots of people su- support it but nah whatever no. Well, they supported him so long as he was quiet about the economic situation in the country has improved, but not enough. Not for not for African Americans. Wow! Did he just not say why you look for minorities? I'm not speaking as an African American. I'll come to the minority part of my criticism in a moment. But we have seen a doubling of the stock market. The financial system has stabilized. The economy is starting to improve. I want to see it improve even faster and in a broader sense so that those who are at the lower end of the economic scale, including African Americans, Latino Americans and others, can start to come up. Ultimately, Now, I would like to also po- uh, point out there that, that 
that I'm not I w- I'm not exactly amu- pleased with the ideas. I, I'm not speaking as African American because the fact is, yeah. I'm, every time I speak, I'm speaking as an African American, a, a black person. Right. So right. it's there's never a time when I'm not speaking as a black person. Yeah, I'm a black person, but I'm also an American. I'm also have uh, can look beyond the boundaries of my particular, uh, 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 I guess, racial I, construct. I, I feel like it may be just the verb, like the the way he's forced to approach someone like uh, Riley, or just be functioning in this party where if he's if he doesn't separate himself a bit, they're going to drill him with it to the point where they don't let him speak, like what Riley's doing right now. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I think that like the, what would have been interesting is, is if Colin Powell had flipped it around and said, Bill, how come you're so interested in the African American community? What's your, you know, what's your, 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 why is it that your identity seems to lead you to only target African Americans? Mm. Mm. Because not- that's, that's the, that's the thing that's always, that's always eliminated in the, in, in, what I would say are ignorant, dumb conversations about race, particularly on places like Fox News, is that race somehow only exists when you mention it. Like the race card, for example, like we're all carrying around like you're breaking up, cards in you're, our you're pocket. Breaking, we just down whenever it's convenient. You're breaking up a little bit, ma'am. Um, oh, but- I'm saying that I was saying that can you hear me now yes <laughs> saying that the that the that the the problem with the dumb conversations about race is that the first of all that race only exists for non-white people so you can't that white is somehow some kind of neutral unspoken non-race race that we don't actually have to interrogate that doesn't actually come with its own set of privileges and baggage etc mm, i'm not i'm not i'm not amused asha in any shape or fashion Those numbers that you just cited are going to be fixed by an improving economy and an economy that's spread out more. And more and more African Americans will benefit and Latino Americans if they also get the education needed for the more demanding jobs. You seem to be voting again on hope in 12 because we haven't seen an economic improvement in this. Actually, we have. If you remember remember in 08, the the economy imploded and we were about to go live underground as if it were the movie The Matrix. I feel like they forget that part when we're about to go underground and live like the movie The Matrix. <laughs> you know, dance, dance in the rain. No, like, no, underground there's going to be no rave dancing. R- underground and there's rave be dancing. No Cornell West. Yes, no. And, and Cornell West is obviously one of our leaders. Country very much. And in addition, the big spending policies of the Democratic Party and the president have driven the. I'm sorry, the big spending. You, you do realize that you guys spent spent a crap load of money over eight years. You, I mean. Are we, are we not gonna, are we gonna pretend that none of that happened? Got it. Yeah. The uh, debt, as you know, to close to 17 trillion dollars, and he's the biggest spending president in history. But you said- Actually, he's, oh, the, no. he, he has the slowest growth of, of government spending than any president since, what was it? Eisenhower? I forgot, I forgot who it was. That's actually, that's just simply not a factual statement at all. Something very interesting. The education. We spend more per capita on education than any other country in the world except Switzerland. And apparently we don't know how to spend that money because people, our, our, our folks aren't, aren't coming out actually smart. Half the time they don't understand basic things. All right. So it isn't the money. But, the- <laughs> but actually it, 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 it's, it is the money. And especially you're trying to cut stuff various places. And oh yeah, you're not spending the money for the right things at all. So what? What? Like, how is he, how is he saying these things so confidently and he's just absolutely positively wrong? Well, you just you have to look at the assumptions that are built into it. 
And when you look at and when you look at those assumptions, it makes the it makes the rhetoric all the more. And I don't understand why I don't understand pervasive. like it, when people go on the show, why don't they just go? No, no, actually, no. Yeah, what you that line right there? No. That's not, no, actually, that's not the case at all. I feel, I almost feel as if, like, it's just, he says so much wrong stuff that it's almost like a, 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 a interesting political debate technique. Say 18 different wrong things, and at some point you will actually overload your opponent because your, over, your opponent keeps going, but that's wrong. That's actually not true. That's not right at all. And then you get to, like, so by the time you finish talking. That, is, that, that was the first presidential debate. Um, remember Romney kind of over, over, overloaded Barack Obama with nonsense and forced him to deal with too much stuff. And Barack Obama chose to deal with too much stuff, and it made him look awful. Mm. You know, yeah, you remember it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I Money continues to yeah, flow. It's the discipline. That, it's the decision. What'd you say? What'd you say, Dasha? Yeah, that's the debate style. It, 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 to, to literally just uh, say 15 wrong different things? <laughs> I have never heard of that. Integration of the family structure. All of the things that the Republican Party and the conservative movement are emphasizing. Yet you have drifted away from them. And I'm saying to you, it's not about money and education. Am I wrong? It is money and education, but... Yes, yes, you are. You are so wrong in so many different ways. I don't know how to start. I don't know. I don't... My brain just imploded because of how wrong you were. It's more fundamental than that. Now, with respect to some of the things I've been saying have been critical of the party, is that I don't think the party recognizes the fundamental demographic changes that are taking place in the country. In one more generation, African Americans, Asian Americans, and Latino Hispanic Americans will be the majority of the country. And we have to educate those youngsters for the positions of leadership that they are going to you occupy. You don't think that's being done and now? I don't, you don't no! <laughs> <laughs> it's not being done now. Literally, we're, we're having a crisis of education. What? Where? where am, I, am I living in a different world? Actually, yes. Bill, yes. Uh, uh, literally, uh, as I always ask you, what reason does Bill O'Reilly have to understand what you're doing? This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Bradley Herring. Bill O'Reilly interviewed former Secretary of State Colin Powell about the Republican Party's focus on voter disenfranchisement. O'Reilly ignored key legal problems for voter ID laws under the Voting Rights Act. And he dismissed concerns of voter suppression, falsely claiming in-person voter fraud is a problem. Surely you know how fraud is committed. And I, I mean, Boston and Chicago, you register and then you show up and it's not you. I have not seen any study that says fraud is a problem of such significance that these kinds of procedures were in place. And I'm glad to see that Governor Scott in Florida has recently said he's turning this back over to his, his local right. community. I just community think showing an ID to vote is, is the bare minimum. Multiple studies have shown that in-person voter fraud is virtually non-existent. Despite this fact, Republican state legislators and their right-wing allies have aggressively pushed discriminatory voter ID laws. Don Lemon on CNN, who happens to be black, is uh, did a segment which is pretty interesting, which is, should we start profiling white men when it comes to these mass shootings? Because when we look at all of these incidents, it really tends to be young white men. 
between 18 and 25. Here's a little bit of that segment from CNN. Take a look. Talking about what should happen with gun laws. Richard Moran is here, Tom Dietz, Lou Palumbo, also David Sirota. David, I got an interesting tweet that said, all recent mass killings were committed by 18 to 25-year-old young men, primarily white. Virginia Tech is the exception. Are you saying that we should start profiling white men? Well, I think we should ask the question, why is America 30% white guys and 70% of the shootings in the last many decades have been at the hands of white guys? I'm not saying okay. we should. So immediately, people flipping out about Don Lemon bringing up this question, which again, really was just a prompt for David Sirota, who's been a guest on the show and a good one, by the way. So this is fascinating. It, it's almost too bad, actually, that Don Lemon is black because it gives people an out. I've been looking online at what, what are the responses to Don Lemon bringing up this topic, and it's basically all attacks, racial attacks, on Don Lemon for being black or on Don Lemon for being gay, which I don't know how it even has anything to do with this discussion, which is incredible, and it's a fascinating distraction to the topic. But we have to ask that, right? Because if the profiling is based on fact, it seems to be all well and good until it's white men. Example, when statistically plane hijackings have been have been determined to be Muslim men over a period of time. We profile them, no problem. There's resistance from from some uh, some groups, but basically the the consensus is that's generally okay in some ways because we agree that's true. That's the group that is most involved here. With these mass shootings, it's young white men, and all of a sudden, if Don Lemon asks the question, N word, F word, he's gay, he's black, doesn't make any sense. No, but to no. be expected. But uh, his his point is uh, is a good one. I mean, not just the the individual shootings, but look at all every few months. You know, there's like a terrorist group that pops up that gets busted by the feds. Um, domestic terror. Domestic terrorist group, right? And uh, it's always a bunch of uh, usually with the terrorist groups, uh, young to middle aged white men, and there um, yeah, there is a, there is a trend. Do you agree, Natan, that it's almost too bad that it's Don Lemon who's asking this question because he's giving racists an out to just say, hey, he's black, he wants something to blame on white people? That's exactly right, and he's not blaming anybody, he's just prompting the guests. These aren't his ideas. When people attack him, they're just attacking the messenger. Right. He's just expressing the other guy's opinion, the other guy's a white guy. I know life is getting As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Some states, uh, you know, in the deep south, celebrate MLK in a way that I did not expect. So apparently Robert E. Lee, who was um, the general of the Confederate, uh, his birthday is near Martin Luther King Day. So a lot of states uh, in the south celebrate both MLK and Robert Lee on the same day. Well, I would call that ironic. <laughs> yes. So.
Look, the Southerners are never going to let it go. And, uh, you know, I know that a lot of Southerners have gotten beyond it. And I know that they think, well, look, this is part of our history, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not a positive part of your history. It's like the Germans, and I know everybody flips out over this analogy. But understand, we enslaved millions of people. We whipped them if we, they didn't agree with us. I mean, it was, we killed them if they didn't agree. We raped them. I mean, so comparing it to the Holocaust is not that far off, okay? And if you ask the Germans, they could go one way. They could say, well, that's part of our history. We're proud of it. That's why I hang the Nazi flag, and that's why I celebrate, you know, Gandhi's birthday next to Hitler's birthday. Well, it's part of my heritage, right? Yeah. Or they can say, hey, you know what? That was an unfortunate part of our history. Obviously, we don't celebrate that. We celebrate other parts of our history, right? So celebrating Robert E. Lee, and he was a great general. I get that, right? Is not the right way to go because what were his skill set used for? To keep slaves. So I would, if I were living in Mississippi, for instance, and by, uh, by the way, each school decides to implement it in different ways, right? So some schools say, no, it's MLK Day, right? So they'll celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. So I, I don't want to make a blanket statement about all institutions, all schools within these states. And my um, guess is the black schools in Mississippi are not celebrating Robert E. Lee's birthday. Correct. Um, but but one thing I will say is, if I were in Mississippi, or if I was in another, uh, Georgia for instance, and, and I came across this conundrum, the way I would try to handle it is, I would give the historical context, and I would talk about our Civil War, I would talk about the reasons behind the Civil War, and then I would talk about our Civil Rights Movement, and just show how far the country progressed. And I would use it as an educational opportunity. And I, and I think that you could take this somewhat negative and turn it into a positive, and kind of show the progression of this country. Uh, and I'm sure that's exactly what the South is doing right no, now. No, I know they're so not, they, but... They, they love to turn those negatives into positives. Uh, so I had a, a partner at the first law firm that I worked for, and he was a very proud Southerner. And he would take out the associates that worked underneath him to drinks on Robert E. Lee's birthday every year. Now, he was my first boss, my partner. And you can get a sense of where I was heading, you know, even back then. I don't do a talk show or anything. This is my first job out of law school. And he takes us for drinks. He's the most senior partner at the law firm. And he says, to Robert Lee. And I go, and of course, Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> and everybody's like, what? I can't believe he just said that. Right, I'm the most, literally the most junior guy there. I, I don't know if I've been there a month or two months. He's the most senior partner. But I wasn't going to let him toast Robert E. Lee and sit there and toast it like a jackass without throwing in Grant at least. Right? He was not happy about that, but that's a sad day for him. Were there any consequences? Yeah, I got fired. No, no you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. He, look, that's the thing. I mean, he was a nice guy. Uh, it, he just he considers it, and that's why I think it's wrong. But he does, he was not, as far as I saw, malevolent about it. I might not know enough about the guy, so that's why I'm saying I don't think you're necessarily being malevolent, right? So, and he was a terrific guy in other ways, and he was nice to me, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? Uh, but it's not the right thing to celebrate. And so, in a sense, what I'm trying to do is look out for you because it makes you look bad when you go in that direction. I mean, who celebrates the guy who's trying to protect slavery? Unless you don't have a real appreciation for what really happened during slavery, or you're saying basically to the world, I don't give a damn. And if you're a good guy, you don't want to send that message. You know, some people, they just won't understand, or just won't understand these things. They give all your message, but I don't understand, or just won't understand.
Coincidence of Barack Obama's second inaugural coming as it does on Martin Luther King's birthday invites reflection. Yes, we've come a long way on race relations since 1968. I, like many people over 50, never thought I'd see the day that a black man would become president, much less re-elected president. We've matured as a nation, at least on the surface, on the issue of race, though you don't have to dig too deep to find the old ugliness. It's right there in the Republican Party. It's in our resegregated schools. It's in our income and wealth disparities. But Martin Luther King was concerned not only with fighting racial injustice. In the last five years of his life, especially, he set out to attack poverty and to confront what he called the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism. He understood the linkages among them. He grasped the injustice of capitalism. And he, deep in his bones, was committed to nonviolence. Still today, capitalism and militarism reign. And President Obama hasn't done much to curb the excesses of capitalism, and he's done absolutely nothing about militarism, but expand its reach. Of all the judgments that a Martin Luther King might make of our current president, that one, I'm afraid, would be the most harsh. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. I gotta admit, today's episode makes me feel weird. It's kind of bizarre to feel like you're announcing major breaking news that should change everything people know about the United States, and that news is 13 years old. Over 13 years ago, the only trial ever held concerning the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. was concluded. And no, it wasn't done in someone's basement under the cover of tinfoil hats. There wasn't anyone with the word Illuminati carved into their forehead. And no, this wasn't an issue of Marvel Comics' bizarro world, where Spider-Man is a gay Latino man, and Superman is a mustachioed dude who refuses to fight crime on the Sabbath. This was a real, live trial between the King family and the conspirators who killed Martin Luther King. This was real. In 1999, a jury found U.S. government agencies guilty of assassinating MLK on a balcony in Memphis in 1968. After hearing from 70 witnesses, including Lloyd Jowers, who owned Jim's Grill, from which the shot was fired, and assisted the sniper, the jury took less than an hour to decide that, one, multiple government agencies were responsible for the murder, two, James Earl Ray, the man who we've always been told pulled the trigger, had nothing to do with it. And three, the U.S. media is a stain on the soul of this country, a tarnish so deep and dark it makes the Bermuda Triangle look like a happy day on the slip and slide. James Earl Ray only signed a confession because he was told it was the only way he could get a trial. Once he realized he would not get a trial, he recanted his confession and maintained his innocence to his death. 
Even Coretta Scott King and the King family said he was innocent. On the other hand, the 20th Special Forces Group was shown to have a sniper team at the location of King's murder. This is significant because snipers are good at putting bullets through people from a large distance away. It just so happens that Martin Luther King had a bullet go through him from a large distance away. What are the odds? Something tells me the eight-man sniper team wasn't at Jim's Grill that day for the cooking. Jim's Grill. Our barbecue ribs are trigger finger licking good. So you're telling me, under U.S. law, the U.S. government has been found to have assassinated one of the ten most courageous, most beloved American leaders, and most people in this country still don't know it? I can't turn on a TV without hearing that Lance Armstrong is guilty of using drugs, or Kristen Stewart is guilty of sleeping with a guy, or Manti Teo is guilty of believing a Skype video of a stack of clothing is a real live girlfriend, Todd Aiken's guilty of believing God raped women, and Mel Gibson hates Jews, and Lindsay Lohan said bliggity blue! Everybody in this country knows every step, breath, spasm, and orgasm that involves Justin Bieber, Dan Marino, and Anthony Weiner. Can't avoid it, can't not know it even if you try, yet this government, our government, our own government was found guilty in a court of law of straight up murdering a peaceful disobedience icon, a legend who led the American people out of the dark ages, a modern day prophet, number five on the list of greatest Americans behind only George Washington, Ben Franklin, Carrie Underwood, and Balky from Perfect Strangers. The government was found guilty by a jury in 1999 and we never heard a word of it? Never heard a sound. To this day, you're more likely to see a news anchor breastfeed an adult man in a diaper live on the news at five than you are to see them mention the government's assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. In the words of Gandhi, what the f*** is going on around here? And that is your breaking holy f how could this happen news from 13 years ago. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. seems every year, right around this time, between Martin Luther King Day and the beginning of Black History Month, you always hear about people trying to insist that Martin Luther King would be one thing or would be another thing if he was alive today, oftentimes forgetting the actual words of Martin Luther King. Some years we hear that Martin Luther King would supposedly be part of the neo-confederate Republican Party of today if he were alive. Other years it's crimes of omission. You hear Martin Luther King's 1963 I Have a Dream speech, but you don't hear 
on TV or in the media. You don't hear mentioned what he said in his 1967 Riverside Church speech. Well, the Pentagon, as it always often does, is topping everybody. The biggest of big government departments is now claiming that Martin Luther King, if he was alive today, he would support more defense spending, more weapons procurement, and more militarism in general. If you think I'm making this up, think again. To celebrate Martin Luther King Day, the Air Force, on its website, put up an essay arguing that it was paying tribute to Martin Luther King and arguing in that supposed tribute that Martin Luther King would support, again, more militarism and more defense spending. Here's what happened. The Air Force's website for its global strike team put up an essay on Martin Luther King Day saying this, quote, Dr. King would be proud to see our global strike team ensuring the most powerful weapons in the United States arsenal remain the credible bedrock of our national defense. Maintaining our commitment to our global strike team, our families and our nation is a fitting tribute to Dr. King as we celebrate his legacy. That was the Air Force. The Marines followed that up with a post on its Twitter feed quoting a Martin Luther King quote in a not-so-subtle effort to claim that the civil rights leader, the most famous orator and, pro and proponent of nonviolence, claiming that he would probably support the Marines in their war-making operations. They put up on their Twitter feed a quote from Dr. King in which he said, quote, a man who won't die for something is not fit to live. Now, Dr. King did say that, but he did not say that as a way to support the missions of the United States Marines. Now, this was a follow-up from last year, in which, excuse me, 2011, in which the Defense Department put on its website a story with the headline, quote, King might understand today's wars, Pentagon lawyer says. So Dr. King, apparently, according to the Pentagon, according to your government, According to your U.S. Defense Department, Dr. King would support more defense spending, more weapons spending, and more wars, or at least the current wars that we're fighting right now. Is this true? Or is this what Cornel West has called the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King? I think the record is pretty obvious. I mentioned that 1967 Riverside Church speech from Martin Luther King. I encourage everybody who's watching this to go actually listen to it, watch it, or read an entire transcript of it. It's one of the most important speeches I think ever given in the United in the in US history. And here are some key excerpts of it. Just to put it in contrast to what you just heard the Pentagon say about Martin Luther King. Here's one quote from that speech. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. The same speech, another quote, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government. Another quote from Martin Luther King, quote, there's nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. So this is, I think quite obviously, an effort to Santa Clausify Martin Luther King. And Glenn Greenwald at The Guardian, who first reported on this, put it, I think, exactly right. He said this, quote, the U.S. military is actually publicly claiming that the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize winner and steadfast critic of U.S. imperialism 
would be an admirer of its massive stockpile of nuclear weapons, its global assassination programs, and its covert use of violence in multiple countries around the world, including where no wars are declared. Merely to describe this agitprop is to illustrate its repulsiveness. And I completely agree with Glenn, except for one additional point that I think is worth making. It is repulsive. Taking the legacy, taking the record, taking the words of Martin Luther King, which were very explicit. Uh, there's not a lot of wiggle room in the Riverside Church speech to claim that Martin Luther King would support more militarism and defense speech. Taking those words and using the image of Dr. King to pretend that he would support a larger Pentagon and more wars is repulsive. But in a political world where lies often show a level of desperation, there is something encouraging here. And that is that the Pentagon seems to realize big shifts in public opinion. The Pentagon is clearly in the business right now, when it comes to Dr. King, of desperate lies. To say that Dr. King would support more militarism, defense spending, and weapons, that is a desperate, demonstrably uh, false lie. It's, there's no wiggle room there. And so in so brazenly lying, the Pentagon is showing that it is more and more desperate to prevent more and more Americans from appreciating the spirit of what Dr. King was saying. The Pentagon essentially sees public opinion polls that show that more and more Americans don't want us to be spending as much money on defense as we're spending, don't want militarism to be the central organizing political factor in American political life. More and more Americans, in other words, are actually coming to the same kinds of realization that Dr. King came to in that 1967 speech. And so in response, the Pentagon is getting desperate. They're lying about one of the most revered, one of the most honored, one of the most respected leaders in American history. That doesn't excuse the propaganda. I'm not saying it's great that the military brass is deciding to lie about Dr. King. What I'm saying, though, is, is that the desperation reflects a welcome, granted slow, but welcome change in American public opinion. The Pentagon is trying to fight that change, but they are increasingly fighting a losing battle. Whether it be a man or a woman, together, 
has the potential to lead to domination and abuse, you know, whether it's between two people or multiple people. So, you know, I would argue that regular marriage has the potential to lead to abuse, and, you know, often it does, unless, you know, we all heard about domestic violence cases and, uh, you know, husbands raping their wives and things of that nature. And then the other arguments for logistical problems, I just, I just don't, uh, it, to me, the idea of logistical problems being a reason to deny somebody the freedom to do what they want, as long as it doesn't harm anybody else, is not a good reason to me. Those concerns may be valid, uh, and I think that they are, but we shouldn't let logistical problems get in the way of, uh, of people's rights. And, uh, you know, democracy is hard work. <laughs> so uh, I think that pretty much sums up what I wanted to say. I really love the show, Jay, and keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. I uh, just wanted to make a comment on your episode for gay rights recently. And I'm a little bit late on this, but I hope you're still having the discussion. On your comment at the end about polyamory, I guess I just really wanted to say that I appreciated you making the comment, mostly because I was going to call in and make the same comment as well. Look, here I am doing it anyway. I'm not polyamorous and not polygamous, but I am gay, and whenever discussing with people and they bring up the argument that slippery slope, I usually cheer on them and give them an answer that they don't expect and let them know that, yes, that's, that's fine. Uh, if three or more consenting adults find the means to get along enough together and, and want to be in a polyamorous uh, relationship, let them do it. Because, like you said, it's the exact same thing. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that I appreciate it. And it's, it's always kind of funny, the faces that you get when you agree that polygamy is okay. And also that I think most of the, the angst against it comes with the perspective of Mormons or other large polygamous sects that would take advantage of young uh, girls and women, and I think that's why, you know, having consenting adults would make it completely all right. All right, uh, yeah, I guess keep up the great work. Really enjoy the show. Thank you. Hi, Tom. I called to give you an argument why polygamy is not the same as gay marriage. If we are saying that biology is the determining factor, that people are born straight or born gay. People are not born polygamous. That is a belief system. It's a religious belief. Personally, I think it's an excuse for men to sleep with a lot of women because if it were biological, then it would be women would have many husbands in the Mormon church too. It would go two ways. So that's the difference between gay marriage and polygamy. One is a lifestyle. The other one isn't. Hey, Jay. Uh, Justin Henderson in Indiana. I just got done listening to episode number 684. Uh, basically, on gay rights. And your commentary at the end of the show, uh, I'm glad you uh, included that because I was sitting through the whole Tom Hartman debate with Dr. Brown just going, uh, he's got you. He's got you on the ropes. And there's nothing you can do about it. And... Uh, you know, with the uh, the ideology of polygamy and other forms of marriage that aren't uh, necessarily uh, social norms in our society, there's also the uh, marriage of one woman to many men. 
And then there's also, you said uh, you spoke of consent, consent in a relationship. We're, we're going to get ourselves back into a corner as progressives because the right's going to hit us with talking points such as the polygamy, polygamy issue and then the incest issue. You can be of age and, and consenting adults and have an incestuous relationship with a family member, which, in my opinion, is completely and totally wrong, morally unacceptable. But my opinion is my opinion, and that's not necessarily the opinion of someone else. And so eventually, the line has to be drawn somewhere. I'm a staunch supporter of gay rights, including marriage. And uh, that's just kind of something I wanted to throw out there. I mean, there's got to be a line somewhere, and they want to put it the right. They want to put it one man, one woman. And where are we going to put it as progressives? I'd be anxious to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Love the show. And have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So first, just to quickly respond to the voicemail uh, from the woman making the distinction between polygamy and uh, gay marriage, uh, her distinction is absolutely correct, but if that is the basis upon which a person judges gay marriage, I think that they're wrong. I think gay marriage is not legitimate because homosexuality is an innate, uh, you know, inborn aspect of, of a person's makeup. It, it's legitimate because it's a contract between consenting people. Uh, you know, that's, that's really all it comes down to. And so the parallel between uh, gay marriage and multiple marriage is that it is uh, stigmatized in society and uh, forces the people who wish to practice it, it to be closeted or you know risk uh, retributions and so forth. So now today, in addition to the voicemails you just heard, I'm going to continue and read a, a few more emails because the, the ones that came in were just so great. So uh, from Travis, you know, not everything he said, but in part uh, made a really good point. He said, the term polygamy has a certain connotation to it, which is the direct result of males abusing power to manipulate and control women. Like most words with negative connotations, it seems silly to avoid using them. However, people arguing against gay marriage that use this as a talking point are absolutely absolutely meaning the negative one man marrying many potentially underage girls. So to have a productive conversation past that argument, which Mr. Hartman did not, you have to quickly define what is meant by this or avoid using that word altogether. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, and that's, that's the end of his uh, message. But, it, you know, of course, it's just a, a classic case of framing as beautifully exemplified by the difference between uh, my first commentary on the subject and my second, <laughs> my first in which I sort of thought, as Travis did, it's silly to, you know, make the distinction because my argument applies to all cases. But because of the negative connotations with the word, uh, it was much better to specify exactly what I meant or to just simply change the term and, and say something else altogether. Uh, so, okay, so secondly, I have a couple more emails and uh, very similar to the one that I read in the last show. And I want to I read these because I feel like I, I want to give, as small as it may be, a platform for these people to be able to say, hey, we're here, 
We're not necessarily queer, though we may also be that, but we like to sleep with multiple people, and although we know you think that's weird, we don't, and feel like we should be treated, you know, as a normal person, uh, regardless of what our preferences are, because you shouldn't really care. Uh, I mean, I think they need to work on their chant a little bit, but that's a good start. So, uh, so first of two emails along these lines, a woman says, I'm a bisexual woman in a committed polyamorous relationship with a straight man. While we haven't yet stumbled upon the woman we might both want to marry, the potential is very real for us. It's also the case that if we did want to do so, we would at this point be prevented from having that commitment legally recognized, bringing up the same problems of hospital visitation, parenting, etc. that gay people are fighting for today. There is always discussion about how poly undermines the stability of relationships. It seems to me to run parallel to the discussion of how gay marriage will undermine the validity of straight marriage. The stability in polyamory comes from removing the inevitable rule that comes with monogamy. Quote, if you fall for anyone else, we're done. Unquote. Polly is built on sharing feelings and being almost absurdly honest within the relationship. The situation I'm in now is far more stable than any monogamous relationship I've ever been in, because I never have to wonder if my partner is crushing on someone else and will therefore leave me. I, in fact, am certain that he is crushing on probably several other people, and am also certain that this will not cause him to want the relationship to end. Ta-da! Stability. Anyway, I appreciate your inclusion of us poly folk in your discussion of marriage. You seem to be pretty clear-headed on the subject. That's a relief when the standard story of polyamory these days revolves around how it's bad for the kids, the women, the dog, and everyone else that a few people have chosen to dispense with jealousy and make ourselves happier in the process. Dan Savage makes the point often that you probably don't know how many happily poly people you know because we're regular humans and many of us are at least semi-closeted. So yes, when one immediately dismisses polygamy as an absurd logical follow-up to marriage equality for gay people, one does sound a little bigoted, and not just to some traditional Muslims elsewhere in the world. Also, thanks for distinguishing us from the Mormons. So not the same thing. Alright, one more. Uh, second email says... Until recently, I was lesbian identified until I met one of my current boyfriends who opened my eyes up to dating crossdressers. So now, for the first time in my life, I am dating someone who I could marry. I live in Michigan, still a Defense of Marriage Act state. Here's my problem. I now have two boyfriends. I have always leaned towards polyamory, but it was never an issue because being a lesbian and being polyamorous was basically default no marriage. Both my boyfriends have expressed a desire to be my real husband, as if somehow the piece of paper given by the government makes it real. That got me thinking about marriage and all the rights suddenly conferred to marry couples. Some are necessary, visitation rights and the right to inherit property, but some are byproducts of the broken system. Why should I be eligible for better health care simply because I am married to a certain person? I wonder if marriage itself is used as a shorthand for all these benefits and if it isn't somehow discriminatory. After all, it seeks to put a dynamic culture into a box, an ever-expanding box, but a box nonetheless, that will inevitably become outdated and redefined. And does marriage, with all its tax breaks and financial incentives, discriminate against single people who work just as hard and don't have two incomes to support their household? As for my personal situation, I'm sure we'll figure it out, but I wish I didn't have to choose one of my lovers just to be certain his anti-poly family didn't ban me from his bedside and possibly run that same risk with the other. Sound familiar? It does to me too. 
So there you go. They're out there. They're listening to this show. Three of them have written in in the course of three or four days. You know, this is not something that, that is a silly thing to think about. This is real people with real lives having to make real decisions and how and their lives are being affected by the current laws and the current cultural stigmas and so on. And so I think the only way to remain consistent on this is to be sort of an absolutist and just recognize if people consent, they want to enter into contracts with each other and you know they're of age, they're able to consent, everyone's uh, aware of what's going on, then it's it's no one's job to try to legislate their morality on anyone else. That is definitely a progressive talking point against the right when the right wants to legislate their morality. I don't know why we would ever want to go down that same path ourselves. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, either by, by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine points are black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Bitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room. Whose shadow bases the floor. Who'll take you out.